0: My name is Marie White, and joining me today is my co-host Nicholas Banton. How are you, Nick? It's
1: great to be with you, Marie.
0: Joining us today, we're very excited. Our first official guest at The White Bikini is Tim Quiet, a musician currently living in Lancaster who was active in the Philadelphia music scene in the 80s and 90s. Welcome, Tim.
2: Good morning. How are you guys? We're
0: doing good. How are you? Feeling good this morning. Survived the snow and all the craziness?
2: Yeah. Been locked in the studio for better part of four days, so I've been in my own little world and it's just so nice to have some conversation.
0: (laughs) We're glad that you're joining us today. Tim, what we're really trying to establish with you today, a few months ago, Nick and I had done, we are basically a podcast that really wants to advocate for bringing back love to the city of brotherly love. And we did go over the history of music and I thought a lot about you. I want you to share with us the memories that you experienced while you were in Philadelphia. We, you know, we sent you a couple questions just to kind of recapture that sense of community that you and I both experienced. We came up at the same time, Nick's a little after us, but you know, well, first would be what was your major influences as a teenager and how did they start to shape your musical journey?
2: Oh, wow. Well, music, I discovered music when I was about eight years old. So I was always kind of a child of classic rock of like the 60s and the 70s. My childhood, my early childhood was the 70s. And then of course, you know, college and everything was the 80s. Um, but I've always, you know, the Beatles, the Beach Boys, Chicago, uh, you know, Winwood and Clapton, the Stones, Wing, all that stuff. They, they were like friends growing up to me. And they always seemed to kind of be a remedy for any situation you know somehow the Beatles always seemed to understand any situation I was in and it became an obsession for me um so it, it kind of shaped everything I did after that um from how I dressed to how I wore my hair to how I spoke and my attitude um, and then of course with Philadelphia soul music was huge um I was a huge huge stylistics fan, and pretty much everything Tom Bell worked on um was you know was inspirational in some way or another. Um, So that's kind of where I came from, but being active in the music scene, there wasn't more until the 80s and the 90s. So I kind of took that flavor of classic rock of the 60s and the 70s and brought that into what I was writing and even the cover Music that we played, we tend to update old versions of songs into something a little more modern. So,
0: when did you suddenly grab a guitar and decide this is what I want to do? What age?
2: Oh, wow. Um, Well, as I said, my first record um, where I discovered music, I was eight years old. And by the time I was 12 years old, I was playing. I just had a burning passion for it. I even used to make guitars out of. uh, you know, fishing line and plywood and try and find ways to play when I was a kid. But really when I was 12, 13 years old is when I started. And I was given a guitar for Christmas. Um, I was originally left-handed and my mom refused to get me a left-handed dedicated guitar because I had to share with my brother. So I learned to play (laughs) right-handed. And uh, that was a little bit hard, but my first... Teacher was actually a folk teacher. And when I was in high school, you know, I wanted to do all the, you know, the great Led Zeppelin riffs and, you know, do all the jams and stuff. And so I would go to, you know, friends that, you know, schoolmates, classmates, and ask them to teach me some of the licks. And oddly enough, what they wanted to learn were the finger picking styles and the folk styles that I was able to do that they weren't able to do. Um, So it kind of melded and it just became a passion. All through high school, um, I, while everybody else was out running around doing things, I locked myself in my room and I was constantly playing, constantly singing, constantly writing, constantly listening to music. It was just—it was just an obsession. Um, so it was just always was and seems to always will be. Did
0: when during this time period did you listen to any Philly radio? Like oh my god, did, yeah, <laughs> like MMR uh, WISP.
2: Yeah, actually, uh, MMR, YSP, those were the, and I think it was it '98. There, the, but YSP was my favorite for some reason because that seemed to be the classic. But WMMR was just the staple. That's what you know, just seemed to be the standard that everybody tried to live up to. Um, But they were playing all the great stuff. They were playing, you know, and they were doing events in Philadelphia. If you remember the Beans and, um, you know, Pierre Robert and and some of them would actually, when we played the chameleon in the 23 East and things like that, um, they would actually come out and introduce us. And that was always,
1: you know, kind of a thrill. I have a question, if I can just jump in for a second, because you said something that we spent a lot of time talking about in a previous podcast, and that is the relationship between the studio DJ, the studio personality, the Pierre Robert and yeah. the musician. Could you talk about what that was like, how the relationship was formed and what it meant to your overall musicianship?
2: Well, I mean, obviously, these guys were were people you were hearing on the radio every day. They were they were just part of your morning routine. They were part of your day as you went through it. And then, you know, to actually be involved with it. And I wouldn't say that I I worked with them at any you know, length, but they would. It was an interesting story. I wish I could remember which DJ it was, but we had played the 23 East. And one of these DJs from MMR or YSP had introduced us that night. Um, and we played the show, and it was super nice. I mean, we had a great conversation. We, we chatted about music a little bit. Um, he liked the band. We did some old Blind Faith stuff and things, so he kind of connected to that. And then a couple days later, I was working at uh, Connolly Containers in Balakinwood, and I was sitting at my desk. And I I walked up to go to the the office, and I hear this voice, this radio voice behind me, and he just goes, "So we meet by day." <laughs> And I was like, I turned around and he was actually watering the plants for the office. He was part of the service during the day, (laughs) watering and caring for the plants in the office. And I said, yeah, I don't get it. You know, the DJ thing. And he goes, yeah, the DJ thing is my passion. And he said, so is plants, (laughs) you know. So it was kind of cool because he remembered me from playing the other night. But, you know, getting together, we were just guys, you know, and it was it was kind of a cool thing, but it gave us some credibility when these guys would show up and introduce us at shows.
0: Yeah, and that's what, you know, Nick and I have been talking about is you would go from being introduced to a DJ to the next day like that this is the story I was looking for from you, that he was working in your office, in the plants. And there was that sense of community that. I think Nick and I both agree we miss.
2: Yeah, you know what? He was he was really warm and personable, but not not like on a music level and it, it just what he said in that introduction you know so we meet by day you know it was kind of cool because we were doing the music thing and kind of out on the town the night before and then during the day you know we were just guys in the office and it really wasn't so much about the music or stature or whatever he was just a guy doing a job and so was i and you know it was just it was so nice to bump into him and really nice that he remembered me as a person i think it was michael tearson could have been uh, that, that very well could have been
0: because i actually think i was there that night i do remember him introducing you yeah, we yeah. also wanted to talk to you. We're going to jump a little from Lancaster to when you started at Villanova. Okay. How did that? You, so you left high school. You go to Villanova. Did you immediately just? hook up with the community there? What led you to be coming to the point that you started recording? And as we discussed, the local bars.
2: Well, that's where I started to get serious. Um, But it's also kind of where I made my mistakes. You know, I learned to play during high school, but now I was thrown into a world sort of outside my safe space. So, you know, the, the way I came to it is I was thrown into going to college on my own. I left my high school band and all my friends behind. And I just saw a posting one day, you know, as you do on campus, you know, looking to form a band. And so I kind of hooked up with, I met with some like-minded guys, you know, we formed a band, they were very diverse styles. Um, You know, Tom Smith was a progressive guy. Um, Bill Brown was the drummer, he was a jazz drummer. Um, Durf Maitland was kind of into, uh, Genesis and kind of, you know, Otter artsier stuff. And I was your Beatles, Rolling Stones, Rockhead. Um, but it was, it was interesting because at Villanova, you had to sign out, um, like a student common area or a cafeteria if you wanted to rehearse. So we had time limits and we had to respect the session. Um, so we had to be pr- productive in that. And that's where it kind of brought us to that level where, if we wanted to do something, um, we had to be productive. And then there were a lot of opportunities on campus, so we started playing um, spring, spring concert. And that was a great Philadelphia community thing because the students, um, they would bring in a sound system and a stage, and they would set up outside on at Kennedy Mall or somewhere, and we would play an outdoor concert with us and other Villanova bands. And folks from the community would come in and they would, you know, participate. But all the students would be there. And while we were there, um, I had the prestigious honor to uh, help form the Villanova's Musicians Guild, which probably is no longer in existence. But back then, what it meant is we could formalize a committee that would give us a budget and allow us to do some funding to to throw events. Um, so we would do this, you know, for the students, bring in the sound companies, things like that. We were doing everything, we would play wherever we could. We were doing prat, prat parties, we were doing private parties, but then we also had to branch out into the local clubs. And so we would do dances and we would do the bars. I, I even remember playing the ground round in King of Prussia. Um, you know, we did frat parties at UPenn and St. Joseph's, uh, as well as at Villanova. Um, you know, so it was it was really a place where we cut our teeth. Um, we were talking about John Barleycorn's and eventually <laughs> getting into the Rusty Nail, you know, and there were just so much Central Park. That was one of the the very first places we played in Devon. And kind of, as you asked, moving into the recording end of it, we had literally stepped off our first club performance at Central Park and a gentleman by the name of Kenny Myers. And he had another partner with him but they had just started a recording studio and they literally got us coming off stage and said we like the two original songs you did we want to record them um and we wound up doing our first recording session in a high school gym on an eight track reel-to-reel in Bryn Mawr Pennsylvania um and that was really cool but then later on um we moved into places like you know Modern Audio in Philadelphia and uh, Ken Myers actually had a beautiful studio in Edgemont Uh, later on that had grand pianos and the two inch, you know, the 24 track Studer machines. And, you know, so it was, it was kind of, we, we would take what we could get, where we could get it. Studio time was very expensive back then. Um, So we would kind of save our lunch money just to get a couple hours in. Um, And it was actually kind of neat too. I had one of the uh, Lynch, I don't remember her first name, but she was a film director. And on the eve of uh, the, band's breakup, she was supposed to do a video for us, and that could have been wonderful. <laughs> so we had a lot of resources, but we didn't actively use them the way we should. Now,
0: this wasn't a thousand years. This was a previous band?
2: Right. That band was called Cyan Blue. Okay. Um, and that we played all through college. And then what had happened is when we graduated, um, I was playing with Vicky Leota and um, I had met Tim Halloran through school. And as you know, we became lifelong friends. Um, and we decided that we you know, we wanted to take a, ma- uh, a stab at playing music as a career when we got out of school. We kind of did everything our parents expected us to do and we wanted to take a couple years and do what we wanted to do. So the first two years after graduating Villanova, um, we pretty much played the clubs and the circuits. We played all through Philadelphia. We played through uh, the main line and even into Lancaster and, and some of the surrounding areas. And that was as, as a thousand years. Um, we actually developed a really good following and they were very loyal. We started with a weekly gig at the Mayo in um, in Ardmore. Um, and we grew from there to the Rusty Nail and then, you know, played some of the other clubs till eventually uh, we gained the interest of the Mountain Brothers with the Cabaret Section And unfortunately, where it all ended was, um, you know, the Mountain Brothers wanted us to play just the cabarets and their clubs for about five years. And uh, then we would talk about doing some recording and releasing some music um, to the industry. And me being a songwriter, um, you know, I kind of didn't want to wait that long. We'd already spent years building a following. Um, And, you know, and also their take on things was a little bit like sort of we've graduated up to that next level. So they really didn't want us going back to places like the Rusty Nail, places where, you know, where they really supported us and built our following. So it kind of ended there um, as far as our Philadelphia excursions went. Um, Pierce Tournay left the group. He actually went on to the Grammys uh, as a member of the GOATS and, um, you know, Vicky Liotta is back in New York now and uh, Tim Halloran and I, as you know, we played together, um, even in the current band, Super Genius, until his passing uh, almost four years ago. Um, but that's all very much, you know, a part of my soul. And that Philadelphia area is just so, so special. It was just the prime of my life. Um, we had no fear. You know, we, we you gave us a stage and we would get up and we would play. And if we didn't know it, we'd just jam it and make it work. Um, you know, we're a little more reserved
0: today. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know that feeling.
1: Yeah. So, Tim, you talked a lot about... Um, your experience coming through, you know, childhood, adolescence, all the way through college and then touring yeah. as young adults. What, was there a, a common thread that connected your love of music through all those stages of your life? Yeah,
2: it, uh, it's
1: just passion and a calling and it's
2: hard to explain. Um, I worked for a compact disc manufacturer for two years and I saw what a business Um, music was. And, uh, you know, they knew I was a McCartney fan, so they gave me the MPL account. And, you know, here, these were my heroes. But everything was so business oriented. For those two years, I really didn't write anything that spoke to me or that was good. But as soon as I stopped doing the business end of it, um, all of a sudden the ideas flowed again and everything. It's something that's a passion it's part of your spirit. Um, our drummer, Steve Brown, now we talk about it all the time that we're not actually writers and arrangers and producers, but we're channelers. Um, and it almost seems like the music and the direction is given to us and it's a calling and it's something that you can't escape. You know, even we've, we've tried to be dormant for a while or whatever, but I'm gonna be 60 years old this year and we're about to put out a two disc set and do a huge show that's a culmination of life experiences. Um, it's called Noah's Farm. And it's, it, it's bringing the past into line with the present and looking at the future. And there's a thread that runs through that whole thing. It's just, there was something that spoke to me when I was eight years old that said, this is something that you connect with and that you need to pursue and something that you need to do. And it was a great way for me to establish myself as part of the Philadelphia and even the local community here in Lancaster where I connected with other musicians. I connected with audience members. I connected with DJs and studio engineers and other players and artists, and it, it was, there's some camaraderie that's just unspoken when you, when you share that love of music. And even, you know, people like yourselves and, and Marie, who's not necessarily a musician, but has such a passion for music, I feel a connection with you because it's something that I know speaks to me and speaks to her, and it just connects us. You know, and
1: it's something that I don't think I could get away from if I tried. Was there a unique element to the city? Um, and I mean, of course, the broader city. Yeah. Uh, that influenced the development of your musical styles and tastes? Yes, absolutely. Everything about
2: where we played in Philadelphia during those times had such a vibe. And that's all I can tell you is that it was a vibe. You know, you would go and you would play Grendel's Lair and it was kind of a dingy place actually remember we filmed the show um, and looking back on it you know I'm like wow that was just such a cool venue and then we would play the Barbary or we would do the chestnut cabaret and there was a a different vibe no matter which place you went into if you went into brownies it was more of a family oriented thing so we would try and do a little bit more of the, the ballads and some of the dance songs but if we would go into the Barbary or we would go into Grendel's lair it was a little bit more down and dirty, so we would kind of do a lot more of the rock style. And all of this kind of melded together, and, and even to the point now with the music that I write and I record is very eclectic. I do everything from bulk to just hard rock to classic rock to jazz influence things. Um, and I think that all of that comes from the diversity of that, that city, um, you know, and the experiences that we've had growing up and doing that it just becomes part of your fabric
0: and i nick and i have a theory and you can say we're crazy or not we felt that the music industry changed with nirvana the moment we heard smells like team spirit did that did you like i feel the magical years for my era was like 85 to about 92 but please feel free to disagree well
2: (laughs) so i agree and disagree I agree that the music industry changed with Nirvana and I think it changed for the better at that point. But I think it was always evolving because the 60s was a classic revolution of music in general. The 70s geared more toward pop and radio friendly stuff and uh, was just, I mean, there's no music like the music of the 70s, It just it's just recorded well, it's written well, it's radio friendly, the one hit wonders are all there, it's all the sunshine and everything you remember about being a kid. But when it got to the 80s, I think that's where it really changed. Because the nature and the style of music went from being very organic to more electronica and more synthesized in the drums, And also everything became MTV and became, um, you know, industry and manufactured in a way, Um, you know, it was really about moving product and moving images and getting people on board. Everybody had to dress like Madonna. Um, everybody had to be kind of out there like Cyndi Lauper and kind of a little on the weird side Um, you were bringing in these bands from England that had very heavy accents when they sang and had this electronic drums and synthesizers and that's where it kind of lost me you know I I stayed with the music uh, of the classic stuff through that but I think Nirvana brought that grit back um, you know that soul back to music and just said you know what it's it's not about it's not about how many records we can move. It's about the passion and the grunge and what we're feeling and making a statement. You know, now nothing shocks you anymore.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I think for me and you know we're from the same era. When I attended concerts in the mid to late seventies, it did feel very um, organic. That's the word I'm going to grab yes. today. Yeah. But by the mid to late eighties, nineties, there was a business feeling. The less Show I saw at a big venue was you two, and wow. right then I thought this is this is something different that I don't like anymore. Maybe I was maturing, but it it just everything felt different. Yeah, well,
2: I think too, you know, you have to remember with music, it's it's up for interpretation. So when an artist releases something, you know, I'm writing things about my life, but I'm putting it out, and the listener might identify it in a different way. That's you know unique to their path and so at that point it's no longer just mine it belongs to you or whoever you know it speaks to and i think the way that you interpret what's being presented to you um you know with me i didn't like all the big shows and things like that i i love that organic you know the the soul and the heart behind music so i do agree with you on that part um you know But there's also something to be said for the massive show and the glitz and, uh, you know, the presentation, you know, there are people that are into that. And so you, the beauty of music is that it's so diverse and so eclectic and there are so many artists. And now with things like we're doing today, the the social media and the electronic outputs that, you know, I I record in my basement and can put something out that's as professional as what the Beatles did on, you know, a four track or eight track machine in the sixties. Um except we're just bringing it into our own homes. And so you have those choices. Um, there's there's so much out there to explore and it's just a matter of what direction you go in.
0: And do Tim, you think, sorry
1: go ahead, Nick. No, 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 I was go gonna Nick. say just quickly, Tim, are there any artists, young artists right now? So uh, performers in their twenties and thirties
0: who
1: grab your attention and you say to yourself, this is this is something special. Yeah. Um, you know, it's
2: funny because I guess with the YouTube era and Apple Music and everything, I have people throwing videos. I mean, I get texted videos 15 times a day, (laughs) you know, like check out this link. You got to check this out. And there are YouTube sensations that I love, you know, things like Krung Bin and stuff like that or more instrumental artists. They're a little bit sort of out there. Um, But I love the artistic nature of that. Um, There were a couple kind of more soul oriented artists that really spoke to me because they had sort of a classic vibe. But the funny thing is, is you can ask me about anybody from the 60s and the 70s, and I can tell you everything about their album covers and their history and their, um, you know, the albums and what their music was about. And I can dissect it. But these days, I really enjoy what everybody sends me. But it's almost like, you know, here's a song and it sort of stops at that. So I can't really tell you artists or what they're about and their history and what the songs are and things like that. It's, it's almost like a smorgasbord of music. You just it's just coming at you so quickly and one at a time where there's no aura like Sergeant Pepper or, you know, Sticky Fingers or, or Exile on Main Street or something that had a vibe to it and had its own uh, its own story behind it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I love getting on YouTube and just popping around and just watching just normal everyday people doing their thing. I think it's awesome.
0: Tim, thank you so much, because I really wanted to speak to someone that could reference. There's so many bad things about Philly in the News right now that I wanted to remember, not just nostalgically, but at time when this this area really did rule the world musically. Yeah.
2: Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah. No, it had a vibe. And you know what? It's still there because unfortunately what, you know, what we feel is a vibe, we get a lot of it from the news and from social media and its opinions and you know, but there's so much, there's so much there, there's so much history. Um, you've got all the schools, you've got the, the museums and the art and you have the community and you have everyday people in everyday neighborhoods and that's how we're gonna get through life and that's how things are, you know, people supporting each other, and interacting with each other as a community and sort of turning off the noise that's in the background. But yeah, Philadelphia is a very special place. It holds a, holds a real, real heavy place in my heart.
0: Tim, thank you for joining us today. We do appreciate the time you took and we look forward to promoting your new CD coming out in the spring. Great, thank you
2: so much for having me guys. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much.